0: Welcome to Tuber Talk, Canada's potato podcast. Tuber Talk is produced by Potatoes in Canada magazine. You've tuned in to hear about the people and the ideas making a difference in the Canadian potato industry. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors. Special thanks to our podcast sponsors, Nutra ag who are leaders in foliar and specialty crop nutrition solutions, and... Their technology platform Nutraanalytics. Nutrianalytics combines standard tissue testing with proprietary algorithms and artificial intelligence to predict yield class within 85% accuracy. More than hundred Canadian potato growers trust Nutra Analytics to optimize their nutritional programs. To learn more, check out NutriAg.com and myNutrianalytics.com. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Tuber Talk, Canada's potato podcast. I'm Stephanie Gordon, the editor of Potatoes in Canada magazine and your host for this podcast. Today I'm joined here with
1: Sebastian Marguerite, director of agronomy at nutri Limited.
0: And thanks for joining us, Sebastian, and calling all the way in from Nova Scotia. Here in Ontario, we're currently dealing with a snowstorm and I hope it's uh, better weather for you out east.
1: Yeah, we had a little bit of an ice storm, but uh, we're making do here, waiting for spring, like everyone else.
0: Yes. So first, uh, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got started working with potatoes.
1: Sure. So um, my background uh, is not as much coming from a farming uh, sort of a farming family, but uh, my grandfather was an agronomist a couple of generations ago, and you know, working with my parents in the family garden, I got an interest in agronomy. And uh, I'm a student from the Agricultural College in Nova Scotia. Started uh, looking at quite a few different crops, and I actually did my master's in asparagus production, but found out quickly there were about 20 acres of asparagus in Nova Scotia. So, uh, not necessarily the most uh, useful skill set. But I started working with NutriEgg about 10 years ago, uh, and I had the pleasure to work with uh, an agronomist named Wilfred Kelly, who specialized in potatoes. And I pretty much just followed him around for about a, close to a decade, trying to learn as much as possible from his experiences and got the opportunity to meet lots of wonderful farmers in Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, Maine, and also in Nova Scotia to a lesser extent. So uh, that was sort of how I started in potatoes. Uh, and then Nutria gave me the opportunity to pursue my doctorate, which I specialized in uh, looking at nutrient concentrations and tissues. Um, from a perspective of processing potatoes in Prince Edward Island, so that just continued my exploration and interest in the crop.
0: And what is it that interests you so much about potatoes and nutrients?
1: Well, I got into agriculture from a, I would say, pretty uh, optimistic perspective that really what we're trying to do is feed the planet, and when you look at the list of important crops in the world, um, potatoes is the number one vegetable crop produced globally. It's been identified as being an important foodstuff for food security too with, um, I think it was 2012 where the UN declared it the year of the potato uh, because of its resilience in terms of feeding people. And when I started looking at how I could help improve potato production, I started noticing that it's clearly a heavy feeder. um, So a lot of fertility is used to grow a a good crop of potatoes, Um, but really what interested me was looking at micronutrients and some of their interactions and some of the ways that we can improve our sustainability by using micronutrients to improve the efficiency of some of the macronutrients that we apply um, pretty generally overall.
0: So let's let's get into that. We're, today we're going to be talking about analyzing tissue data in potatoes. So let's get some of the basics out of the way. What does a grower gain from analyzing tissue data?
1: So if we think about some of the things we can do You know before we plant the crop some of the things that most growers use is soil sampling and so the idea there is to get an idea of uh, what nutrients are available to the crop what nutrients we may want to address with our uh, pre-plant or our planting fertilizing and then for a lot of people that's where that kind of analysis ends tissue sampling is something that occurs in season and it gives us the opportunity to kind of get an idea um, before it's too late so before we get to the harvest time Um, kind of a scorecard of where our plants are um, and what nutrients we may want to address in season, either through foliar applications or fertigation. So um, I find it something that I don't try to replace soil analysis or anything like that, but it's certainly a complement to get an idea of what's available to the plant. When you look at soil data, again, we use different extractants to try to estimate the availability of nutrients in soils, but when you're looking at a tissue, another benefit is that you're really looking at something that that the plant itself was able to take up. So it's a much better idea of what nutrients are available uh, during different times of the crop.
0: And you mentioned this testing kind of happens throughout the season. Are there certain times of the season where you're always kind of doing tissue testing, like emergence, pre-harvest?
1: Yeah, so we are starting to look a little bit more at the, you know, 15 to 30 centimeter timing, though that's historically not one that we've been doing a lot of work with but in the past we've really uh, focused on the bulking stage of of the potato crop so we start uh, just after tuberization and uh, generally if we're talking about a long season variety like russet burbank we'll sample sometimes eight weeks in a row um, some growers even 10 and then if we're dealing with a shorter season variety like superior or whitney uh, generally we do six weeks of sampling so really it's following the crop during that critical bulking phase to ensure that we have everything at optimal levels to ensure maximum crop production. Mm -hmm.
0: And what are some of the classical methods for interpreting tissue samples?
1: So that's where I started about 10 years ago and I basically uh, relied on a lot of the critical values um, and you can't see me but I'm doing air quotes while saying that but Again, critical values that people have been using for a really long time. And in exploring some of my work for my doctorate, uh, I started to really look at where these values came from. So, unfortunately, a lot of the work was done uh, in the 60s and 70s at a time when our yields were about half of what they are today. And again, in regionally speaking, we generally get a lot of this work coming from the Pacific Northwest, Idaho, where there's a lot of potato production. So What we generally got in the past was a value, and then we would compare to what the lab would consider critical. But if you start to read more into where those values come from, a lot of them are not really related to yield. They're often the level at which you actually visually see a symptom of deficiency, which we know is far too late to make any kind of intervention. And again, it really, uh, you end up importing values from an outside source. So what I really wanted to do, because my growers you know, we're mostly in Atlantic Canada was to rewrite some of these values and basically look at how we can map grower relevant outcomes like yield and specific gravity to different nutrient complements within um, our sampling.
0: Do you feel like these classical methods, because you mentioned a lot of it is based on research done in the 60s, 70s, do you feel like they're going out of style and they kind of need a refresher?
1: I think when you talk to most most farmers, they know that, um, and most agronomists feel the same way. The problem is, is that everybody's so busy. We expect a lot of the farmers to be, you know, weather forecasters, soil scientists, uh, mechanical specialists, and people involved in markets. So to add data analysis to their already large list of tasks is unreasonable. So. I think there's a lot of effort that has been made in different regions. So there's a group out of Alberta that's kind of re-looked at some of the things for nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. But uh, yeah, I think what's very obvious is that we're using very old data sets and also using very old methods to interpret it. So I kind of use the analogy, but the Apollo space program, which sent people to the moon, was powered by less computing power than a Nintendo Game Boy. So now that we have supercomputers in our pockets, uh, it allows us to really look at some of these things uh, with a different lens. And so, lately we've been looking at some deep learning techniques and machine learning t- techniques that are coming out of the artificial intelligence g- grouping of uh, analyses. And it's making some of this data much more clear uh, compared to what I think the classical methods were looking at. Another thing that I think farmers and agronomists know is that there's uh, interrelation between nutrients. And when you're looking at a classical method of nutrient sampling, you're trying to pick out from 15 different nutrients, which one should I pay attention to? Maybe I have two or three that are considered limiting. But again, helping farmers make the choice as to which one they're most likely to see a yield response or a quality response from. That's uh, what I've spent the last 10 years or so working on.
0: And so tell me about some of the work that you saw in the field. What are you starting to see with the work
1: that you're doing? Sure. So what really prompted a lot of this was finding some interesting responses to manganese for instance so prince edward island we have fairly acidic soils manganese is not a nutrient that we consider limiting in most cases and we were seeing this major difference between our highest yielding growers and you know the value of manganese for what the lab was considering critical so we've picked a growing situation where we had manganese levels higher than what the lab considered critical but a lot lower than what we were seeing from our high yielding growers we did a small randomized complete block design experiment and lo and behold, we saw a nice 5% yield improvement from a small application of manganese. And when you start looking at what this actually, this kind of response means, really it's talking about improving nutrient use efficiency. So we know that manganese is related to nitrogen metabolism. And so when we see a response in yield, it's, it's not like the manganese itself is inducing some specific response for the crop, it's actually changing the metabolism of that uh, macronutrient that we know is critically important and then giving us a better outcome. So, those are some of the things that pointed in that direction. Also, boron is another one. So, a lot of our farmers know that their soil tests are quite low in boron. We use tissue sampling to try to remedy that as well. But, you know, if you look at even the extension recommendations from Prince Edward Island and versus New Brunswick, there's a lot of disagreement on the best way to address boron deficiencies. There's a lot of disagreement on what a boron deficiency actually is in terms of what value the soil test uh, should be at to consider deficiency. So uh, when you have that much difference of opinion in such a small geography, it's important, I think, to do local data and local testing to see uh, what nutrients apply or are the most uh, relevant for the cropping situations.
0: And those field trials that you did, they were based out of PEI. What uh, growing years were they done in?
1: So that original data was actually in 2011, which would have been my first, or sorry, 2010, which would have been my first field season with uh, Nutriag, And so that's what spurred on this idea that, well, these critical levels are seemingly irrelevant, at least for certain nutrients, and that's what then led to this 10-year turn towards looking down the rabbit hole of nutrient disorders. And so we have now modeled in Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and PEI, different chip stock, different french fry models different table models
0: and you mentioned here you know soil testing to find out whether or not you're deficient I think there is a lot of talk in production about the big nutrients the macronutrients everyone knows that you know crops need nitrogen phosphorus potassium but when it comes to the micronutrient requirements like you were saying boron zinc uh, copper you know normally you get this from your soil without needing anything extra but sometimes when you are deficient you can start to see that it makes a difference especially in potatoes where you'll start to see a big difference in your yield and quality let's talk a bit about nutrient use efficiency you mentioned how when you added the manganese it wasn't that adding it helped the yields it just helped the potato i guess better metabolize the nitrogen what are you seeing in terms of how these micronutrients are helping with you know the uptake of the macronutrients
1: So, that's where uh, if you start looking at some of the yield response curves that are generally available for macronutrients, you see this slope that kind of reaches a plateau, and that's the law of diminishing returns. So, we can expect a certain response to a nutrient until a certain point, and then we consider that nutrient maximized. What we're actually seeing is that those curves, when we model them using artificial intelligence, are dynamic. So, we look at, let's say, a nitrogen response curve, and it seems like, oh, Um, I'm in a situation where if I had higher nitrogen concentrations, I could see a better yield improvement. But what we're finding is if you actually tweak the concentration of manganese, that yield response curve actually can change. And so we're seeing that in certain crops like soybeans, for instance, where we know manganese is very related to, to nitrogen metabolism, that if we increase the level of manganese in the tissues, we can actually expect the same yield response from lower concentrations of nitrogen. And so to me, this is really, again, why I got into agriculture, but if we're looking to the future, especially in potato production, where the consumer is expecting a high level of sustainability, and again, air quotes on that one, whatever that uh, ends up meaning for different people, that we're going to get into a situation where we're gonna be limited eventually in the macro applications of elements. So we already have jurisdictions in Canada where that exists, where there's limitations on phosphorus use, in Europe, you see limitations on nitrogen and phosphorus in different uh, jurisdictions. And almonds is a perfect example in California where there's a, a nitrogen budget that a farmer cannot exceed and they're given that basically from a state level. So if we're looking towards a future where we can't just correct a problem by, let's say early dye or something to that extent, by just, well, add more nitrogen to the situation, we're really gonna have to understand how all these nutrients interact with one another. And in the past, again, when we had less power than the Nintendo Game Boy, it was very, very difficult to model all of these nutrient interactions. And so if someone was looking at how you could actually set up an experiment, it became so complex with the 14 or 15 different nutrients you're looking at that there was more noise than there was any significant differences in the data. However, using a lot of these modern statistical tools, uh, we can start mapping out some of these interactions. And that's where we're at today with nutrient analytics is Trying to identify some of these opportunities to really make drastic changes in nutrient use efficiency by minor tweaks in some of the micro and secondary nutrients that, uh, like you said, often people just consider uh, something that we always just get supplied in adequate levels within the soil.
0: Or micronutrients are kind of like a nice to have instead of a need to
1: have. Exactly, and it's even what I'm talking about in terms of interactions. They, they again, farmers know this, and farmer and agronomists know it as well. High phosphorus levels lead to A tie up of zinc. And so, even with the same concentration of zinc in the soil, if you don't interpret that relative to your phosphorus level, you might be getting a a uh, misrepresentation of what's available to your crop. So, we know that to be true with potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those nutrients are known to interact in terms of uptake. And if you look in a soils textbook at toxicity coming from potassium application, you're actually just going to see a little line that says C magnesium deficiency because. In reality, if we put too much potassium, we just negatively affect the uptake of magnesium. So we've known these interactions to be the case or that they've existed in the past. However, that's where we leave it. We just sort of make a comment on nutrient balance, quote unquote, and then uh, we have a very hard time as agronomists to quantify it. Some of the things I find interesting, even looking at soils data, I mean, I hear lots of agronomists in Atlanta, Canada that... We'll talk about potassium levels in the soil between 80 to 100 parts per million as being the ideal. And it's interesting to me because I've used that terminology and I've mentioned that to growers before. But yet, as agronomists, we know that the availability of potassium is very much dictated by the pH. And so, how could any agronomist give a critical level for potassium without the con- context of the pH of the soil? And so using this kind of, again, advanced modeling, we can actually look at how does the availability of phosphorus or potassium change in our soils as we modify pH, and then it establishes a more dynamic target uh, that's more reflective of the actual needs of the crop.
0: So basically, in layman's terms, what you're looking at is how can you optimize what you're doing with micronutrients so that when it comes to your macronutrients, like your nitrogen, your phosphorus, you can kind of, I guess, use less and still kind of get the same benefit uh, from when you were kind of using more. Is that kind of what you're talking about when you talk about the role of micronutrients and that nutrient balance?
1: Yeah, and I think growers know much better than most people what their macronutrient requirements are. I just think that in lots of cases, and this is not just Atlanta, Canada, but throughout the world, is nitrogen is often used as a band-aid. So if there's something lackluster in a crop, we just add a little bit more nitrogen. And I think we're not going to be able to use those band-aids in the future as people expect, I guess, more precision out of our our ecosystems.
0: And so you mentioned it a bit before, but NutriAnalytics that's your platform to kind of help with some of these relationships that you're seeing. And the whole premise was that, you know, the nutrient recommendations have not kept up with yields. And you've mentioned how this is kind of widely known. So what exactly is your platform trying to help with then?
1: Yes. So nutrient analytics as a platform uh, really is meant to tie in uh, local data and uh, make it accessible to the farmers. So when we're talking about a PEI chip, stock grower, they will actually have a model that's been built by their neighbors' data and their own data themselves, and from a very specific perspective of a chip grower. So whether that has to do with the grade out or whether that has to do with the yield or perhaps specific gravity, um, we can give them recommendations that show basically the historical values and how they most relate to these outcomes that they're interested in. So we have a laboratory in Toronto. Um, so a lot of our growers will basically send samples from that first tuber sorry, tuberization point and uh, basically send for six to eight weeks uh, pedial samples. And then again, we will use our uh, machine learning techniques to make the most valid recommendations we can for their given geography.
0: What's some of the questions that you've been receiving from growers about what you're doing? What's been some of the feedback?
1: Well, I've been lucky enough that we have a group that we call the Maximum Economic Yield Group in Prince Edward Island. And so uh, we meet up three or four times annually to review some of the trial data that we've got, but also they're able to keep up with some of the developments with nutrient analytics So this whole project really started at the request of our grower group to understand uh, how to see the best responses to uh, micronutrient applications. So, we have a core group of growers that use foliar micronutrient sprays. They've seen results in their field, and what they really wanted to know was what are the best recommendations that we can gain using our local data. So, most of the time they're asking things like how do we relate yield and specific gravity, for instance. So, we know that sometimes these two are op- opposing forces in the crop. Uh, we know that. From a processing perspective, we want to have a nice specific gravity, but again, we also know we don't want to do that at the detriment of our yield because that's the the biggest economic metric for our farmers. So really understanding the, the nuances in terms of how you can see a yield improvement, but also see a quality improvement is something I definitely get asked a lot from farmers in general.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned your MEY program. What's it like for you getting to work in, among the community of potato growers? What's that experience been like for you?
1: Uh, working with farmers in general, my uh, whether it be in Atlanta, Canada or throughout the world, is a huge privilege. I haven't really met a single farmer that I didn't like. And again, when we're talking about people that are generally trying to feed the world while sort of being attacked by their neighbors for trying to kill them. It's amazing that they can continue to be as resilient as they have. I think it's very clear when you work with farmers that they're frustrated by their image when it comes to the general public. And it's something that I myself have tried, whether it be on gigantic Facebook arguments or just random interactions with my neighbors to remind them of the service that farmers are generally providing. And this kind of service, again, looking at, environmental stewardship and how we can improve the sustainability of our production systems. It's something that I'm very proud to be a part of and I'm very excited about.
0: And the growers part of that program, what kind of, I guess, feedback have you received from them? It must be great to, I guess, get to talk to your neighbor about, hey, is this working? on your field and then hearing from another grower where they've had a similar experience. I guess that's how we mostly learn you kind of want to hear from someone's first-hand experience so I guess what's the feedback been from growers being a part of that group where they get to share their results basically?
1: So far it's been amazing and that's again one of the privileges we get as agronomists is we get to go from farm to farm and see different experiences whereas farmers are so busy they don't really get to share those types of details in the growing season. So we again get these uh, growers together in Toronto once a year. And last time we had about 65 growers in the room, and you know there was hour-long conversations about crop rotation and different management practices, row spacing, different crop protection strategies, and some different techniques that some people have considered and other people haven't. So the last time we had the meeting, we had people from Maine, New Brunswick. Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island. So uh, it was a real amazing thing to see all of these growers sharing that, but from nutri perspective as well, we had all of our researchers in the room and that's something that we really work hard at doing is that there's a lot of perspective of coming up with some kind of product or some kind of uh, interesting technology from the top down and sort of then trying to find a place where it might fit in existing growers' practices, but allowing the farmers to express some of the concerns that they have in their field, some of the problems that they've been facing, connects some of the laboratory people with the field in a way that we haven't necessarily seen in the past. And I think it's, well, I I know it's very well received by farmers to have a chemist's ear or have the physiologist's ear and to be able to ask uh, very poignant and interesting questions.
0: And we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation, so if you could boil it down to, I guess, one key takeaway that you would like growers to take away from this conversation, what would you like it to be?
1: I think the the main thing is just to try to collect as much information from your fields as possible. We have so much more access to information and data than we used to, and we're collecting a lot of information in our fields and starting to trust our own observations and not necessarily always looking faraway places to get an idea of the right way to grow the crop. I think farmers generally know, in most cases, the right way to grow the crop. Where people like us can come in is to sort of show where we could tweak a few things here and there and try some new novel things out and see how we can get to that next generation of yields. And do you actually
0: have a success story of your own to share Of since you've been working on this, one where you have seen a really big result or a really big impact? in a field based on a recommendation or anything like that
1: yeah so uh like i mentioned the mey group we got together I think it would be in 2018 at this point and it was mostly a group of atlantic canadian growers but we had the opportunity to have some farmers come in from ontario they saw what we were doing and they actually offered some some of their ancestral data from soils and tissues and yields and things like that and we built them a model specifically to the ontario chip stock perspective And when we looked at, again, we split a field with one of the growers in that area, and we used this nutrient analytics system to make recommendations based on their local data, and we saw a statistically significant increase of about 500 weight following the program from the start of the season all the way to the end. And again, that was compared to a competitive program, which really was following more of the perspective of we know that this nutrient is important in Atlantic Canada. In that case, it was boron, and they kept on pounding boron to the to the crop. So you saw no response because realistically, when we modeled the Ontario model, boron did not pop the same way as it did in Atlantic Canada. So it's another experience where people will take data from one region and try to copy and paste it into another. Rather than doing that, we tried to work from the ground up and built local model that was more reflective of the Ontario chip stock producers experience. And we saw nice yield response as a result
0: wow that's really cool and it's actually really interesting because i think when it comes to looking at hyperlocal results, it really matters because if you think about the regions and the history of the regions, the history of the soil, even the kind of industry that we had here in southern Ontario, like that's going to make an impact to the kind of micronutrients you see in your soil and then what's in the air, what's in the water sources beside you. So I, I always find it so interesting how It's such a delicate balance that could be impacted by things like, you know, what type of industrial industry is to the south of you. And I think that's always cool to see. And it is so region specific. So I just think that's that's cool to see.
1: Thanks. Yeah, it's like, again, traveling and working with this in different regions. I've heard interesting stories like citrus in Israel, for instance, using the critical levels for tissue from Florida which, I mean, we're talking about a desert versus the Everglades, 10,000 kilometer plus distance. And one is, you know, looking at the juice market and the other one's looking at table. And there's so many different types of citrus as well. So it's interesting how it's so complicated that sometimes people just ignore it and they want to pick a number and they want to just be told, you know, it's very simple, just follow this number. When in reality, when you look at how it relates to that grower's experience, then they get frustrated and lose faith in in the in, in the actual analysis when really it's it's the interpretation that's been lacking
0: mm. but that is to say not everyone is an academic like some people have been doing this for years so they actually can you know you get that gut feeling or you could you know smell the soil or you know kind of know what's coming up and you can kind of sense your crop and I guess that comes with years from experience so I totally get it and I think for some of the next generation of growers I guess those who are taking over the farm are kind of coming into this what's one thing that you would tell the next generation of growers to kind of pay attention to if they want to get better as a grower or stay competitive in the ag industry do you have anything that you kind of see that's coming up that's useful for them to pay attention to
1: yeah, I think, again, uh, trying to be as critical of outside information as one gets. It's, I guess critical is maybe the hard word to use, but understanding that, like you said, they have a lot of that knowledge themselves. And so outside of experiences really should be looked at tweaking what they've already seen as being useful on the farm. If they're still, in many cases, most of the farmers I work with are multi-generational farmers if they're still in production at this point they're clearly doing something right and what you're mentioning about you know taking in some cases decades to get that gut feel for the crop that was exactly my experience with my mentor Wilfred Kelly I mean that individual could uh, look at a potato crop and the canopy in a way that I still you know dream of one day achieving and so much experience and so many decades of, of that are certainly not overridden by Uh, some interesting data science um, and, and statistical analysis. But what we're really trying to do is make sure that it doesn't take this next generation, five decades to catch up to some of those individuals. And so if we can do and become just as effective in the field in 10 years, as it took some people 40, then I think that's a benefit to all growers. And so the best way to do that as a young farmer is to make sure that you're collecting as much of the information that's relevant to your farm as possible doing field trials in your own fields. So most of our MEY growers will dedicate, you know, in some cases three or four fields a year to split field trials and we'll replicate them on multiple sites. And so having a grower group that uh, works together towards very specific targets. And again, from a young person's perspective, looking at your neighbor as a collaborator and not looking at them as a competitor, because this is a huge industry and we're competing in many cases against other alternative crops, not necessarily another potato farmer. And so the, the more we can share and learn from our neighbors and uh, work collectively, I think the better off we will be as an industry.
0: And the tech, the use of tech, I guess the prevalence of it, it's just another symptom of the ag industry evolving. And you know, you still have the people with that gut feeling and, and we still value that kind of experience, but now we're just adding tech to kind of complement that so and it's kind of like what you were saying earlier in this interview where you know growers nowadays they have to be everything they have to be marketers they have to be business people they have to be agronomists so you know anything that we can do to help and I guess you know lighten the load a bit um, because there's a lot being asked from them so I do want to wrap this interview up and I do have a fun question to kind of end things off what is your favorite way to eat potatoes?
1: Oh my favorite way to eat so I love fingerlings, so we grow them here on our farm. I'm an apple farmer, which don't hold it against me, but we still grow quite a few potatoes. Um, but yeah, I like to uh fingerling potatoes and then get an iron skillet to a nice strong heat uh, with a little bit of oil at the bottom and then just basically roast them up um, in the skillet to the point that you get a nice crisp brown on the outside and uh, when you open it up, it's almost like a baked potato on the inside. So that's a family favorite around here.
0: Oh nice. And I guess you could also mix in apples too. <laughs>
1: yes. That's yeah, don't worry. I, I won't like uh,
0: I won't rat you out or anything. But I do <laughs> want to thank you for taking time to speak with us today. If people want to get a hold of you, are you on Twitter? Are you available by email? If you want, you can share that contact information with me and I can include it in the show notes.
1: Sure, yeah. I'm at Twitter at Nutri-Egg underscore Sebastia because my name's too long to fit otherwise. And my email is Sebastian M at NutriAg.com and love to hear anybody's comments or questions.
0: Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our podcast sponsors, NutriAg and NutriAnalytics, for their support of the show. To learn more, check out NutriAg.com and MyNutriAnalytics.com. Thank you for listening to Tuber Talk, Canada's potato podcast. Catch up on all of our other episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or online at potatoesincanada.com slash podcasts.